Hej, and velkommen til The History of Denmark. Episode 9. Valdemar the Victorious. Hello everyone. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of my listeners. Before we begin, I should correct a minor mistake I made in episode 8. The Wendish Crusade was launched in the year 1168, not in 1169. This distinction will play a small part in today's episode. Last time, we covered the reigns of Valdemar the Great and his son Canute VI. We also looked at their chief allies, Archbishop Absalon and his brother Espansnar, and how they helped in the Wendish Crusade. Finally, we touched on the background of Valdemar II as he resisted his scheming regent, the Bishop of Schleswig, and managed to usurp Holstein from the Holy Roman Empire when that realm was in disarray. Today, in an episode which I have looked forward to since I first started making the podcast, we follow Valdemar the Victorious throughout his 39-year reign from 1202 to 1241. Valdemar took the reins of power after his brother died aged 40 without leaving any children. We covered last time how the first 12 years of his reign proceeded with fighting in the south. During these years, the brothers Annas and Peter Sunesen took over from their uncle Absalon, with Annas becoming the Archbishop of Lund and Peter the Bishop of Roskilde. Both brothers had studied in Paris and Annas had even been to Italian and English universities, making him one of the most learned scholars in Denmark at the time. He had a close relationship with Pope Innocent III, and was appointed the Papal Legate in the Nordic region. This meant that he was the direct representative of the Pope, and with this position came the responsibility to spread Christianity to pagan peoples. After the Wendish Crusade had reached its goal, the church set its sights on the eastern coast of the Baltic Sea, and in the case of Denmark, the Estonians. Thus began the Northern Crusades. At first, major gains were made by the Brothers of the Sword, a German military order which would later merge with a Teutonic order. They conquered and established themselves in Livonia, roughly modern-day Latvia and southern Estonia, beginning in the year 1203. Denmark, meanwhile, conducted an invasion against the island of Osel, which is called Sarma in Estonian, in 1206, but they were unable to hold the island. While a castle was constructed, not enough men could be found to garrison it, and the invasion failed. In 1218, Bishop Albert of Riga, which is the modern-day capital of Latvia, asked King Valdemar to assist him because he was under attack from Estonian raiders who had allied themselves with the Russians of Novgorod. At the same time, the brothers of the sword were not happy with being vassals to the same bishop, and they turned hostile towards him. Valdemar chose to join the Crusades in Livonia and Estonia, but decided to work with the brothers of the sword instead of the bishop. Thus, in 1219, a Danish and German invasion fleet landed in Tallinn, the modern-day capital of Estonia, which is located on the northern coast of the country. 
Some sources claim that Valdemar brought as many as 1,500 ships. He had sent his nephew, also named Albert, in advance the year before, assisting the Brothers of the Sword in the so-called Cold Crusade during the winter of 1218 and 1219. The brothers captured the island of Osel, which Valdemar had previously tried to conquer, and then crossed the ice to northern Estonia, which was now Valdemar's goal. The weather was so cold that many crusaders lost their noses due to frostbite, and damages to hands, feet and the face were also common. The city of Tallinn is named as it is because the Danes erected a castle at the location, which the Estonians called the Danish castle, or Tani Lin, becoming Tallinn over time. Valdemar and Archbishop Anna Sunsen settled down at their new fortress in the summer of 1219, and waited for the Estonians to approach them and surrender. The Estonians did send embassies to negotiate, but they were only attempting to buy themselves more time. On the 15th of June 1219, just after supper time, the Estonians launched a five-pronged assault on the Danish position. The Danes were taken completely by surprise, and a bloody battle ensued. Bishop Theodoric, who was the first bishop of Livonia and the founder of the Brothers of the Sword, was killed in the fighting. Panic took hold of the Crusader camp, and it looked like the Estonians would win the battle. But suddenly, Valdemar's windish vassal, Wislav I of Rügen, appeared with his riders, which he had hidden behind some dunes, and managed to flank the attackers. This gave the other troops some breathing room, and after regrouping, they drove the Estonians away. The Battle of Tallinn is a famous battle in Danish history for two reasons. The first reason is that it marks the breakthrough of Danish rule of the Duchy of Estonia. The second, and probably more important reason, is that there is a legend connected to the battle. It claims that during the battle, when the Danes were hard-pressed by the pagans, Archbishop Anasunsen raised his hands in prayer, and saw that as long as his arms were in the air, the Danes would gain ground. Whenever he grew tired and let his arms fall down, the Estonians would gain the advantage. With the help of servants who held up the Archbishop's arms for him, God himself intervened on behalf of the Danes, and sent the Danipol, the flag of Denmark, falling from heaven as a sign of his favor. This symbol inspired the Danes and gave them hope, allowing them to win the battle. Since the 15th of June 1219, Denmark has used the red banner with a white cross as her flag, and from 1913, the 15th of June has been a national holiday called Valdemar's Day in honor of the king's victory at Tallinn. Coincidentally, the 15th of June also marks the fall of the Wendish fortress of Arcona in 1168 to Valdemar the Great and Archbishop Absalon, which we covered last time. While the story of the flag falling from the sky is interesting, it is almost certainly a myth. Two Danish chroniclers have written about the legend with one attributing the event to a minor battle in 1208, and another correcting it to the more interesting battle in 1219. Later historians have since gone with the second version of events, because it makes for a better story, to have the flag appear at an important battle. It is nonetheless true that it was around this time that Denmark began to use the Danipol, 
The white cross on a field of red was already in use at the time as a crusader banner, used both by the German emperor and the Knights Hospitaller, another military order of knights. Christian August Lorentzen, a Danish painter who lived during the 18th and 19th centuries, created a romantic painting of the Dannebrog falling from heaven in 1219, which I also adopted as the logo for this podcast when I first started making it. Valdemar II can be seen seated in the foreground overlooking the battlefield, and Anna Sunesen in the background on a hill being helped by two monks. You can find a picture of the painting on the website. Denmark was the first of the Nordic countries to use the cross design for its flag, but Sweden, Norway and Finland, among others, have since followed suit and adopted similar designs with different color schemes. The Dannebrog is commonly flown on dates which have historical significance, such as those of the occupation and liberation of Denmark during World War II, or the birthdays of members of the royal family. When the Danish and German campaign against Livonia had come to an end, the brothers of the sword and Denmark negotiated on the matter of who should control what territory. Denmark ended up with the northern part, while the brothers gained the southern part. Under Danish rule, Estonia became a Christian feudal country. Churches and castles were built, bishops were appointed, and taxation was put in place. In 1225, hostilities between the brothers of the sword and Denmark broke out, and the military order invaded the Duchy of Estonia. By 1227, the entire duchy had been occupied by the Germans. A decade of tension followed, but after suffering a devastating defeat by the Estonians and their allies in the Battle of Saule, the brothers of the sword decided to merge their order with the Teutonic Knights of Prussia. As a condition for this fusion, the Teutonic Knights demanded that peace be made with Denmark, and so, in 1238, the two parties met in Steensby in Zealand, where they signed a peace treaty. The Duchy of Estonia was returned to Denmark, and it remained a Danish possession until 1346. Valdemar was married to Dalmar of Bohemia, with whom he had one son. Valdemar the Young. In 1218, before he left for Estonia, Valdemar himself crowned his nine-year-old son as his co-king before an assembly of 15 bishops, three dukes and three counts. His wife, Queen Dalmar, was beloved by the people and had a reputation for being kind-hearted and good. Perhaps this is the reason why several medieval ballads were written about her. Of these, the most famous is the one concerning her early death in 1212. While pregnant with their second child, Daumar became ill and lay dying in the city of Ribe. The ballad describes her final moments and how she sends for the king after her servants pray for her. While the king rides as fast as he can, he arrives too late. When all who are gathered pray a final time for Daumar's soul, she suddenly rises from her bed and makes a final request of her husband. She asks that all prisoners be set free and that the king marry her friend Kirsten and not Berengaria, a Portuguese princess. These requests are likely written into the ballad to represent the values attributed to Dalmar 
and the popularity she enjoyed. It should be noted though that ballads are not exactly the most accurate historical sources, but they do give some insight into the legacy of the characters involved. Valdemar did ease the prison conditions in Denmark, but he also chose to marry Princess Berengaria two years after the death of Dalmar in 1214. Berengaria was the tenth child of King Sancho I of Portugal and is remembered to history as the opposite of Dalmar. Proud, hard and evil, but also very beautiful. She bore Valdemar II three sons and one daughter before herself dying in childbirth in 1221. When her tomb was excavated in 1855, a well-preserved skeleton was found, along with her braided ponytail. All three of her sons, Eric, Abel and Christopher, would become kings of Denmark, for reasons we will deal with in a moment. While on a hunting trip on the island of Lue in 1223, King Valdemar and his son, Valdemar the Young, were ambushed by Count Heinrich of Schwerin, who was their vassal. He kidnapped the two kings and held them hostage for several years until a ransom could be arranged. During this time, the nephew who had participated in the Northern Crusade before Valdemar himself arrived became the regent of Denmark. He was the ruler of Holstein as a vassal of his uncle, having been granted the territory after Valdemar had usurped it from Adolf III. His son, Adolf IV, managed to exploit the situation by attacking Holstein to claim his inheritance. The two sides met in the Battle of Mölln in 1225, and the regent of Denmark, Albert, was captured after the Danes were defeated. This led to the loss of Lübeck and Schwerin, as both became vassals of the German emperor instead of the Danish king. Valdemar II was then ransomed for 45,000 silver mark, all of Queen Berengaria's gold except her crown, as well as equipment for 100 knights and horses. The king also had to give up all territory between the Eider and Elbe rivers and all the Slavic territories except for Rügen and Fehmarn. Thus, all of the territory Valdemar had won when he took Adolf III captive, and all the territory his father Valdemar the Great had won, was back in German hands. However, the king would not give up so easily, and he led an army against Holstein in 1227. The German force was made up of the armies of Count Heinrich of Schwerin, Adolf IV of Holstein, the Duke of Saxony, the Archbishop of Bremen, and troops from Lübeck and Hamburg. Valdemar enjoyed some early success, and throughout the spring of 1227 the two sides met in minor skirmishes throughout Holstein. The armies finally confronted each other in the Battle of Bornhövel on the 22nd of July 1227. Valdemar was said to have 14,000 men with him, made up of 3,000 riders, 5,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 mercenaries, and 1,000 miscellaneous troops. The Germans were said to have 3,000 riders, 3 to 4,000 mercenaries, and 5,000 foot soldiers, numbering 11 or 12,000 men in total. These numbers are uncertain though, and it was unusual for such large forces to meet each other in the medieval age. Perhaps the armies only numbered a few thousand on each side 
but we can never know for sure. The battle raged on longer than expected, with heavy fighting. Rumors say that the men fought with blood all the way up to their knees. King Valdemar had several horses shot out from under him, and he even lost an eye during the battle. It looked as if the Danes would win the battle, but at a key point, a contingent of 1,000 men from Dithmarschen deserted to the German side, and Valdemar was forced to retreat. Denmark lost between six and 8,000 men, while the Germans lost between three and 4,000. Valdemar's ally and nephew, Otto, the Duke of Brunswick-Lüneburg, was taken captive, as was the Bishop of Ribe. The Battle of Bornhövel confirmed the loss of Holstein and the Wendish territories, and Valdemar II retreated across the Eider River, where he used his remaining army to stave off further attacks. His younger sons were then sent to Schwerin as hostages, where they would remain until the king had paid off the ransom he owed to Count Heinrich. Remember that at this same time, Estonia was being invaded by the Brothers of the Sword, meaning that Valdemar's reign had reached a low point. Of course, as we covered, the Duchy of Estonia would be returned to Denmark 11 years later, due to a compromise with the Teutonic Order. While a catastrophe, the defeat at Bornhövel also marks the beginning of Valdemar's internal development of Denmark. His wars were over, and it was time to look at issues like taxation and legal reform. Although plague struck the cattle in 1230, resulting in the harvest failing the following year, and the need to ransom several bishops from the war, Valdemar persisted. In 1231, he published the Liber Census Daniae, or the Danish Book of Land Taxation, the first cadastral registration of Denmark. It is a valuable source for understanding medieval Denmark because it concerns itself with much more than just the value of farmlands. It also contains a perpetual calendar, a chronicle of Danish history between 1130 and 1219, a list of popes and Danish kings, different theological works and other things. It was not replaced until 1688, showing just how valuable of a tool it was. In the last year of his reign, in 1241, Valdemar II signed into effect the Codex Holmiensis, known in Danish as the Code of Jutland, or the Law of Jutland. It is the third and final provincial law of Denmark, with the Law of Scania and the Law of Zealand coming before it. Some scholars speculate that it was in fact a national law, but the mainstream view among historians is that it only applied to Jutland and Funen. It was the only provincial law to have a preface. It is believed that the preface was written by the Bishop of Viborg, who was also present at the unveiling of the code, along with the king, his sons, the Archbishop of Lund, seven bishops, and the best men in the kingdom. The code was written in Danish, breaking with the tradition of writing law texts in Latin. The preface begins with the famous words, which many Danes know by heart, and which can also be seen on the front of the district court of Copenhagen. With law shall the country be built. The code underlines the fact that it is the king who is the giver of justice. The law itself is a mixture of foreign church canonical laws and old Danish law codes. 
let me read you the first paragraph of the preface. Quote, with law shall the country be built, but if all men were content with what is theirs and let others enjoy the same right, then there would be no lead for a law. But no law is as good as the truth, but if one wonders what the truth is, then shall the law show the truth. If the land had no law, then he would have the most who could grab the most by force. End quote. As you can tell, the essence of the code is that the law is only necessary because some people are greedy and deceitful. It is put in place to counter the principle that might makes right. Valdemar the Young, the first son of Valdemar II by his first wife, Dalmar, would not live to succeed his father. He died in a hunting accident in 1231 when he was shot with an arrow. His father was thus left with his three sons by Berengaria of Portugal and various sons he had produced outside of marriage. The most senior of his sons was Eric, who was named the Duke of Schleswig in 1218 when Valdemar the Young was crowned co-king. In 1232, he took his half-brother's place as co-ruler of Denmark, ceding the Duchy of Schleswig to his brother Abel. Valdemar II sought to defuse conflict between his sons by giving each of them some land within Denmark, so that none of them would have to be jealous of the others. And by being vassals to the oldest brother, they would have to be loyal. Perhaps he wanted to emulate the relationship he had had with his own brother, Canute VI, where he served as his loyal vassal throughout the years. The youngest brother, Christopher, became the lord of the islands of Lolland and Falster, while the illegitimate sons of Valdemar received the counties of Helen and Blekinge. Valdemar II, later named Valdemar the Victorious for his victories in Estonia, died on the 28th of March 1241, and is remembered as one of the most remarkable kings of Denmark in the Middle Ages. He is often depicted holding the Denipal because of the legend we talked about earlier in the episode. He will not be the last Valdemar we will cover in the History of Denmark podcast. Succession was not as unproblematic as Valdemar the Victorious had hoped. Especially Abel, the Duke of Schleswig, was dissatisfied with his lack of autonomy and vassal status, and the realm entered a state akin to civil war. Eric insisted that Abel was but the manager of Schleswig, and from 1243 to 1244, the two brothers raided each other's territories. Not even monasteries were spared, causing the church to threaten any who participated with excommunication. The brothers made a truce in 1244 and decided to work together on a common project, the stabilization of the Duchy of Estonia. The duchy was threatened by the Orthodox Russians, and King Eric called for a crusade against them. The joint expedition did not make it far, though, likely because of mistrust between the brothers. Civil war broke out for good in 1246, and Abel was strengthened by reinforcement from his wife's family in Holstein. He was married to the daughter of Count Adolf IV, who could supply him with more troops, and the city of Lübeck joined his side as well. His brother Christopher and the illegitimate Canute also allied themselves with Abel. Nonetheless, Eric possessed the strongest force, and the fighting raged from 1246 to 1249. Several important cities were pillaged and razed across Jutland and Funen. Eric's coffers were running low, 
resulting in him levying an extra tax on Scania in 1249. The peasants revolted at this, but the king defeated the uprising and successfully implemented the tax. From this point, he was known by the moniker Plowpenny, because the tax was put on farmland. The money was used to invade Abel's seat at Schleswig. The younger brother had proclaimed himself king, and while we don't know for sure, the sources indicate that Eric forgave his brother and accepted him as his co-king. On the 9th of August 1250, the two brothers met in Schleswig for a reconciliatory party. But Eric was taken captive by two of Abel's knights, forced onto a ship and sailed out into the Sleen Inlet. Here he was killed and his body was thrown in the water. Abel and 24 of his closest knights later swore that they had nothing to do with it, but everything points to Abel being behind the murder. So, on the 1st of November that same year, 1250, Abel was crowned King of Denmark in the Lund Cathedral. The civil war was over. That was all for this episode. We have covered the almost 40-year reign of Valdemar Victorious and the nine years his son, Eric Plowpenny, spent on the throne. We have learned how Denmark got its flag, the Dannebrog, and how northern Estonia came under Danish rule. Next time we will deal with the outcome of the murder of Eric Plowpenny, which was, of course, not committed by his brother Abel. How could it be when he had sworn an oath that it wasn't him? In the spirit of 2016, I recommend that you go to my website and find the posts for this episode. Here I will link you to a video of the girls' choir of the Danish Broadcasting Corporation singing in the new year. First they perform Wer Willkommen, which is a hymn dedicated to New Year's Eve. After that follows the anthem of the royal family, which is called King Christian Stood by the Lofty Mast. And finally they sing the national anthem of Denmark, There is a Lovely Country which is also the music I use for the intro and outro. The address is, as always, www.thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com. Happy New Year's.